Killers always have a story. Linked to their crime might be tales of anger or greed, of betrayal or woe. They might be justification or remorse or pride. Sometimes they will be told eagerly, but sometimes they will be held as unuttered secrets. But they always have a story. The stories I deal with are the special ones, the ones which must be heard and studied and feared. Like the prophecies of the mythological Cassandra, these stories are in fact warnings, and we ignore them at our peril. I am the keeper of the Cassandra files. Episode 2 A Soundtrack in blood. The case file of Vincent Isaac Drogo. By the time he was fifteen, the abilities of Vincent Isaac Drogo were already well known to the music community, or at least he was well known to the music community who counted. From an early age, he had shown outstanding technical ability in almost every instrument he picked up, and by the time he was ten, he had performed in some of the most prestigious venues in Europe, funded by the Arts Council and spurred on by his own parents, who were keen to support their impressive child protégé. While a virtuoso in a number of instruments, it was in composition that Vincent really excelled. He was fluent in the language of music in a way that few others were, and he understood every single musical thought in even the smallest of pronunciations, in the same way that a person of intuition might read someone's life story into the way they sipped a drink or smiled at a witty remark. Vincent could do the same with music. He could effortlessly see the images, ideas, or emotions the composer was trying to convey by listening to only a few seconds of their work. Like any other kind of fluent linguist, he could also see how well they had done it and how good their phrasing and accent were. Somebody once said of him that Vincent could see the error through the very eyes of Mozart. By 18, he had begun to wonder if there was more to life than playing concerts and living out of a suitcase, so he dutifully attended one of the country's finest music schools and graduated at the level one might have expected for a young man of his talents. A career in performance or tuition beckoned, but by the time he was in his twenties, it was doing so with a rapidly decreasing appeal. Within a few months of graduating, Vincent had decided that if he was to stay in the world of music, he would do so on his own terms. By the beginning of his thirties, Vincent had found his place in the world. It was a place where there was little musical language to understand and hardly any subtlety. There were, however, lots of women and lots of money. Vincent liked both, and as a young, handsome and successful producer of pop music, he found that both came to him relatively easily. While some in the music world felt he was wasting his talent, Vincent would simply smile and jingle the keys to his Aston Martin. If any doubt lingered that he had taken the correct path, Vincent could always call up one of his friends who had graduated with him. 
some were moderately successful and some had even created some worthwhile work that they were justly proud of. Most, however, were either scratching a living or working long hours and some were even teaching. Vincent felt that was where the real waste lie. Of his university contemporaries, his friend Lizzie had been closest to him. Although she was less practically gifted than Vincent, her understanding of the language of music was on a par with his own, and, unlike Vincent, she wanted to compose for a living. Thankfully, she was sufficiently talented, well-connected, and lucky enough to have been able to make a good living for herself. They had remained friends of intervening years and began almost every reunion by gently mocking one another on what each believed to be the other's poor choice of career. They would then reignite the affair they had been having for over a decade. It only ever lasted a couple of days a year and transcended the fact that he lived in London and she in Canada. It also transcended the fact that she was married to a composer of similar ability to both of them. Lizzie and Vincent demanded nothing from one another, aside from the odd drink, the occasional meal, and every now and then something more physical. Neither would call it an affair, as it was almost so casual as to be virtually pointless by most standards. Lizzie certainly didn't consider herself as being unfaithful to her husband. It was just something that Vincent and Lizzie did whenever they met. Neither of them ever gave it any real thought beyond that. The day that Vincent's life changed forever began with a call from Lizzie, a reminder that she had bought some of his valuable time for a drink that evening to celebrate being in London on her birthday. Vincent was looking forward to it. He had cleared his diary and intended to finish work early. It was a Wednesday and there was nothing he needed to do that couldn't wait until the following day. Wednesdays were traditionally the day he listened to the final mixes of releases that were going out the following week. He always made one last check that everything was to his satisfaction. He also took half an hour to listen to any promising independent releases and anything recommended by the army of talent scouts he paid far too much money to. Wednesday was a good day. A day where his decisions and ears for something special could be the beginning of something big. Just as some painters relished the end of a painting and the final result, Vincent always enjoyed the moment the process started. Unfortunately, in the pop world, things rarely started that actually interested him. He could understand talent, even a good composition. He could pick an artist that would sell big from a demo tape recorded in a garage. Obviously, looks, image, and the ability not to crack under the pressure of touring was important too, but that wasn't his problem. He simply nodded yes or shook his head no, and the managers, executives, and other sprites and functionaries of his company took care of the rest. He simply chose the raw material, and he usually knew one way or another within a few bars. That Wednesday was different. That Wednesday, for the first time in years, Vincent actually heard something. His initial reaction to Caelan Rennes' demo tape was that it was gimmicky, rather arrogantly entitled pay for your crimes, it had arrived as an old-style cassette tape. 
Vincent Cole's personal assistant had asked where it had come from, and she quickly confirmed his suspicions that the tape had attracted the attention of Mel, one of his army of assistants who had a taste for the retro. She had been impressed by the first track, and had then taken the time to record the tape onto a USB stick. Along with the tape and the USB, there was a brief covering note stating that Pay For Your Crimes was an independent album that Rennes was keen to develop with Vincent's expertise. Expecting very little, Vincent inserted the memory device into his computer sound system and clicked on the first track. Had anyone witnessed Vincent's next reaction, he would have been extremely embarrassed. It was to quite literally sit up and take notice. The first of the eight tracks on the recording was entitled Prelude. It mixed some fairly accessible guitar pop with vocal harmonies which never outstayed their welcome enough to become catchy. That it was good was not in question, but there was something more. Whoever had written it clearly had something to say. Vincent hadn't heard underlying language and the sounds and melodies of music used in this way in a great many years. This was the area of the true musical genius, and here it was, clear and precise in a pop song. It was subtle, but it was undeniably there. A simple introduction to the idea that what was coming was going to be astonishing, and that the listener should embrace it. As the first track on an album, it was as close to perfect in its use of musical language as it was possible to be. It wasn't a fluke, either. The second track was an instrumental. This was an astonishing risk by most standards of a pop artist, but the notes and melodies Rennes used came together in a symphony that again spoke its message to Vincent as clearly as if it were being whispered to him by a lover. It built on the first track, stating once again that what was coming was important and needed to be heard. Track three, another accessible guitar-based song, built further, stating that the listener should not be afraid. As each track progressed, Vincent became ever more aware that he was being gently and reassuringly prepared for something special. Vincent had begun by simply enjoying the rare clarity of the language that was being used, like hearing one's own home dialect spoken by another native after many years of poor mimicry. However, it was not long before he started to follow and to be convinced by what was actually being said in the music. This was almost disconcerting, as Vincent had begun to feel that if a message needed to come with assurance that it was not to be feared, then perhaps fear, or at least concern, might actually be the most appropriate reaction. He paused halfway through track five, the third instrumental of the album. By now he had begun to feel that the writer of the music was trying to manipulate the listener, not to simply tell a story or convey a feeling or an experience, but was actually trying to promote some sort of action. Vincent was also aware of the use of sudden, jarring notes, and fast tonal sweeps into minor keys were creating almost a feeling of hostility inside him. He stood up and walked to the bathroom which led from his office. Throwing some water on his face, he felt strangely glad to be released from what he had been hearing. 
as if something had been on the verge of convincing him to do something terribly wrong. He walked back into his office, poured himself a large whiskey, and looked at the tape on his desk. He didn't doubt that it was the work of a genius. What he was unsure of was what this genius actually intended to achieve. So one of the kind of ability Rennes was showing in his music would hardly need to tout demo tapes to producers. All of Vincent's experience told him that this album could easily be very successful, but Vincent also saw something sinister in it. What concerned him was that he couldn't see exactly what. He decided he needed someone else's opinion. He drained his glass, picked up the phone and called Lizzie. When Vincent arrived at her flat, Lizzie was waiting for him, as she always was with a welcoming gin and tonic in her hand. The flat she kept in London for the few weeks of the year that she was there was nicely decorated in perhaps the manner one might expect of a moderately successful composer. The shelves on the wall were packed with books and other musical paraphernalia. In one corner there was a large and very expensive piano, in another was a music system of a probably similar value. Between them were two large and comfortable leather armchairs. They both sat down while Vincent explained his reservations about the Kittle and Rennes recording, and Lizzie listened, knowing that Vincent was not given to over-exaggeration. If he said there was something fundamentally sinister about the recording, then there was probably something in it. Pouring them both another drink, she suggested that they both listen to the whole thing together. Vincent pulled out the USB device, and together they listened to all eight tracks in the way that only people who really know music might, in complete silence, without reaction or comment. When the last bars of the final instrumental had faded away, Lizzie rubbed her eyes and looked at Vincent. They had both heard the same thing. The whole recording had built up the listener so that they were completely open to receiving the final message with absolute clarity. They now knew what the message was. Kill them, then kill yourself. At first, Vincent was simply glad to have his suspicions vindicated, but there were questions that still needed answering. Why go to such effort to create a piece of music to get such a message across? What was the point if the message didn't stipulate exactly who the listener was supposed to kill? Who was the message even meant for? Someone? Anyone? People with a genuine ear for the subtlety of music, or just stupid, impressionable youngsters? Lizzie seemed less concerned. She postulated that the whole thing was just another gimmick. Only a handful of people in the world might actually see what the composer was trying to do. Even fewer people would be likely to hear it, especially if it was only circulated in a demo tape to music producers. Perhaps Caelan Reyes was simply very good at getting people's attention. If a producer could hear the message, then maybe they could actually take notice of the artist, as Vincent had indeed done. He had also kept the message both ambiguous and virtually invisible to almost everyone who might hear it. Because of this, there was no danger of youngsters listening to the music and then going on a killing rampage. 
If Kalen Rennes had wanted anything more than a bit of attention from a producer who might make him rich, he had actually done a pretty poor job, Lizzie concluded. What he had achieved was the considerable interest of a very well-connected producer, and his friend, who was still keen on going out for her birthday drinks. There was still plenty of time, and St. Vincent agreed that the whole night would be on him if they could just listen to the recording once again. It was less than 35 minutes from start to finish, and he didn't want to still be thinking about it when they went out. They may have missed something, some of the clue as to what this was all about. Lizzie rolled her eyes, but agreed, pouring herself another drink and dropping into the armchair. Half an hour or so later, when the music ended, the message was again clear and unchanged. Kill them, then kill yourself. By now, Lizzie was as bored as Vincent was fascinated. She announced that she was going to take a shower and get changed before Vincent treated her to what she intended to be a number of extremely expensive birthday cocktails, followed by an extremely expensive birthday dinner. Vincent remained in the living room, rolling the words over and over in his mind. He then wrote them down before staring at them, as if seeing them in ink might give him a new perspective. He couldn't agree that this was all just a stunt to gain attention. It seemed far too subliminal for that. The whole recording served to both build up anger in the listener and make them unafraid and unquestioning about the final message. To make it ambiguous would just make the whole exercise an elaborate waste of time. Worse than that, a disappointment. Vincent resolved to listen to the whole thing once again while Lizzie showered and went through her baffling long makeup routine. This time, however, he would not listen to the USB. He would listen to the tape, just in case there was something in the manner it was originally recorded in which might give another clue. It was the quiet man who lived opposite who heard the screams and called the police. After that, he watched through the security peephole in his front door as the police arrived at Lizzie's flat, knocked on her door and, hearing nothing, broke through it. They found Vincent first, semi-conscious and incoherent, slumped in one of the armchairs, his wrist and neck slashed with a broken glass. Around the chair were yards of unravelled cassette tape, as one officer frantically fought to stem the blood pouring from Vincent's body, the other checked of the rest of the flat. He found Lizzie's body in her bedroom, lying on the bed. She had been stabbed multiple times, probably by the kitchen knife that was found lying beside her. When he had recovered sufficiently to be interviewed, Vincent stated that he could remember nothing from the point where Lizzie left the living room to get ready for their night out. Nothing until an hour or so later when he found himself standing over her body. It seemed he had already tried to take his own life and was light-headed from his own loss of blood. Staggering across the living room, he saw the tape in the machine that he'd been listening to and realised immediately Some of the nuances of the music had been lost when they had been transferred into an electronic media, 
By listening to the original tape, Vincent had finally received the message as it was intended to be heard. It had not been, kill them, then kill yourself. It was, kill her, then kill yourself. And it was a message for him. From whom and why, he couldn't say. All he could confirm was that he had listened to the tape in its entirety and then, filled with complete conviction that what he was about to do was absolutely right, had walked to the kitchen and picked up a knife. Vincent Isaac Drogo was tried for the murder of Elizabeth Mortimer nine months later. During the time, Vincent's defence had tried to seek out some of the world's foremost experts on music. They had sought expert opinion regarding the possibility that a structure of notes within a tune or a number of tunes might be able to compel someone into an action such as murder. Few agreed that it could, unless the message was very obvious and accompanied with some other influences such as hypnosis or even torture. Besides, who would want to compel Vincent to murder his friend? Lizzie's husband was the only other person with a possible motive for his wife's murder. When asked, he completely denied any knowledge of Caelan Rennes and laughed at the suggestion that someone might be programmed to kill with music, let alone a silly pop song. That the postmark of the envelope which contained the original tape was from a town less than 20 miles from where he resided, he also dismissed. It was a mere coincidence. Interestingly, no trace of Calvin Rennes, whoever he was, could ever be found, and he has not been heard of since. Vincent was found guilty after a six-week trial and sentenced to life imprisonment. A year later, his case for appeal was heard and refused. The appeal board members noted unofficially that the idea that messages that made people harm others could be hidden in a pop song was utterly ludicrous. Vincent now teaches composition to other inmates at Yarnington Prison. He's surprised that he enjoys teaching as much as he does. The rest of his time is spent working on compositions of his own. Curiously, from time to time, one of the prison officers forgets to lock Vincent's cell door or absentmindedly leaves their wallet or mobile phone unattended in his presence. Coincidentally, they were all listening to Vincent playing one of his compositions beforehand. Perhaps Vincent is working on creating the evidence needed for another appeal or perhaps he is planning on taking his incarceration into his own hands. Whatever his intent, it may be just a case of finding the right notes, and Vincent has all the time in the world.